Hey, I'm going to pray with you again. I want the whole church family to hear it. So I don't know if you caught this, uh, but as Ben was leading us, um, he was welcoming us and talking about the songs. Uh, he, you know, he's mentioned, he mentioned in first service that he's coming off a really hard week. It was real bad. And so coming in and you're worshiping, it's ministering to his heart. But, you know, we're family. And um, the Bible describes the church as a family. And uh, I can tell from personal experience that you might have a really bad week, but you still got to show up and lead. And uh, he's coming off a rough week, but he still just led us into the throne room. And so that means a lot. And so I want to pray over him. But in addition to that, I know uh, we've got some families that this next week is going to be pretty hard. And I know some friends of mine here at New Hope, there's an anniversary this week that just stings. And I know last night, David uh, and I sat in the uh, breezeway of the entrance of the... Uh, of the emergency room. We prayed with a family who's here today who's had a really hard night as they said goodbye to their dad and their grandpa. We're not here to play games. This is real. The God we pray to is real. The people we pray for are real, and they live real lives. And so you might be in that group. I mean, it's just a hard week. It's a rough week. You needed those songs today, and uh, you might need some prayer. And so I want to pray together as a church family and pray over Ben and pray over the Lockhart family. Um, pray over uh, the rest of you that are having uh, maybe not so easy of a time. Let's pray. Father, I think it's so important for us uh, just to be aware and be present and call an audible every once in a while. Just come before you, weak, not really knowing what to say. And I don't know what went into Ben's week, but I know that uh, sometimes it's hard to get up and you got to lead through it. And man, this church has been so blessed by him in his ministry here at New Hope. And uh, I personally, uh, I thank you for his friendship. It's, it's made my life better. And uh, God, I thank you for the families in this church that call this place home. And they're hurting. And, uh, you know, someone who cares, I, I want to take that pain away, and I can't. Um, but I do know the one who can comfort. And so we come before you, and we ask for that comfort. Just pray a blessing over them, that you'd wrap your arms around them, that you would make yourself known and present to all of them. Father, we love you. We thank you that we can come to you, that because of Jesus, we have access to the throne room. And so we come humbly, and we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you guys for allowing me to pull an audible there. Good morning. I want to welcome you. My name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at the church, and um, I've been out for about a month, and uh, I'm excited to be back. You're about to get it. So <laughs> uh, we're going to get into the word here in just a moment. I have one more request of you, though. Um, Friday, we sent this team uh, to Haiti, and uh, we prayed them to Haiti because uh, there's so many reasons why that probably shouldn't have worked out, and yet God blessed it, and they are on the ground in Haiti doing ministry this week, and we're really grateful for that, um, and we want you to pray for them this week. They're going to be doing ministry every day, and uh, Ryan, our student minister, is leading this trip. He and Catherine, if you're not aware, served uh, for multiple years down at Sunlight Academy. And so they're going to be in the academy. They're going to be doing uh, some classroom work. They're going to be leading worship for the people there, the staff and the students. They're going to be uh, 
holding babies in an orphanage. I mean, it's going to be a week of ministry. And so uh, Ryan told us that the best way to support them while they're gone, in addition to all that you've already done to get them there, would be at 2 o'clock every day. If you would set an alert on your phone, you can do it right now. It won't bother me. Set an alert 2 o'clock every day, no matter where you're at. When that goes off, that's a strategic time for this group because they're out of the, the class. They're going to meet together as a group and debrief before going into their afternoon activities and, and into the evening. And they said that's the perfect time to pray every day. So 2 o'clock, if you would uh, join us in praying over our Haiti team, and you'll get to hear much more when they get back here in a couple weeks about how the trip went. So, hey, we're going to jump in. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll get us started this way. I don't know if in your Bible reading that you've experienced this, but I have multiple times, and I'm, I'm confident that you probably have as well, reading through the scriptures, and you come across a passage or a story or a narrative, and when you're done reading it, among many other things, you think, man, that's just brilliant. That is just brilliant. The way that that played out, it's just, I mean, you couldn't, I couldn't come up with something so brilliant. For me, one of those stories is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 starts this way. In the spring of the year, when kings go off to war, David sent Joab and remained back in Jerusalem. Now, if you know your Bible, you're familiar with this, but if not, let me fill you in. After King David sends his army out and doesn't go to war with them, that's red flag number one. He goes out on the balcony and he begins to look over his kingdom and he notices a very attractive woman who's bathing. And he begins to lust. And he entertains those lustful thoughts to the point where it leads to action. Red flag number two. And number three, as he calls her to his quarters and he has an affair with her, whose husband, Bathsheba, whose husband Uriah, is one of his uh, top soldiers in the army that he just sent off to war. Well, they have this affair, and David thinks that everything is covered up, and you can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He thinks everything is fine, no big deal, except Bathsheba comes back, and she informs him that she is pregnant. And so rather than repenting, which is the perfect opportunity there to repent for his sin and try to go to the Lord and, and make amends for what he's done, instead of doing that, he strategically decides that he can cover this up. He thinks he can come up with a plan to fix this, and he has Uriah come back from war, but Uriah, in his honor, decides not to sleep with his wife, and so that plan is foiled. He continues to think, what can I do? How do I cover up my sin instead of repenting for it? And decides that he can send Uriah to the front lines of the military of the war and pull back the rest of the army. He does that. Uriah is killed. And then David, as a hero, decides that he's going to take Bathsheba, this new widow, into his home, make her his wife. And now he can explain away the pregnancy. And you're left thinking, this guy who the Bible says has a heart that is after God's own heart continues to make these poor and foolish decisions. And the brilliant part for me, the part that I really love about this story comes in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that starts this way. And the Lord sent Nathan. The Lord sent Nathan, a prophet. Nathan's got quite the task on his hand as he's got to approach the king He's got to come into the king's presence, and he's got to call him out on some sin. And I don't know about you, but having hard conversations is hard enough, let alone with somebody with that level of influence, that level of power, that level of control, and somebody who has convinced himself that this sin is behind him. He's covered it up, and he doesn't need to talk about it anymore. It's quite the task. Nathan knows this and approaches this with the, what the Bible would call wisdom. 
So he comes into the king's presence. He could have come in guns blazing, which is what I would have done. I'd have come in and said, guess what? We're talking. We're talking right now. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he comes into the king's presence, and he wants to do this the right way. And so he tells him a story. He comes in, and he tells King David. He says, David, I have a story to tell you. There was a rich ruler, a rich landowner who had all kinds of livestock and happened to have a traveler that was coming to stay in his home. And because it is their custom to show great hospitality, he knew the traveler needed to stay with him, but he selfishly didn't want to use some of his own livestock to provide a meal. So he went to the poorest person in the land and he stole a ewe lamb from him. The only thing this man had, and he prepared that lamb and he served it for his traveler to show hospitality. Well, what I love about this is that immediately hearing this story, David gets fired up. I mean, look at how David responds to this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5. Put it up here on the screen. It says, David burned with anger. He gets just so frustrated against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. I'm like, man, he is fired up. He's so angry. He, he feels like it's a, a righteous anger because how dare somebody steal something that was somebody else's and act like they don't even care about it. And then the brilliant part, the brilliant part comes in verse 7 where Nathan looks at him and says, well, guess what? You're the man. The brilliant. It's like the mic is dropped, the hammer's brought down on him. He built him up, he got him in, he convinced him of this truth that he was drawn in, and then he just brought it home. I love it because Nathan approached this with wisdom, and if you've ever been on the receiving end of a hard conversation, I think you would appreciate too when somebody puts as much effort into what they need to say to you, they put as much effort into how you need to hear it, and they do it the right way. Well, this is what we're going to see. This same kind of thing is what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with the Apostle Paul. See, the Apostle Paul was very familiar with this small church in Corinth. As a matter of fact, in our study, we went through the book of Acts last year. And in our study of Acts, we read in Acts chapter 18, the Apostle Paul shows up in this port city. Now, Corinth was a really important city because it was a port city. It had influences from multiple different groups of people. So you think uh, a, a live metropolis, the economy boomed. You had influence from all kinds of different lands coming to this really important city. They'd have temples from both Roman and Greek gods. All kinds of sexual promiscuity was happening. I mean, this was the Vegas of the day. There was a lot going on in Corinth. So the Apostle Paul sees this, and he strategically shows up and decides he's going to plant a church. And he shows up, and he begins to share the gospel. People become Christians. He forms a church there. In Acts chapter 18, we learn that he spends about a year and a half pouring into this young church, really investing in them and preparing them. And then Paul does what he don't normally does. The church gets up and going. Paul moves on to go plant more churches. But here's the problem. As he moves on to these other cities to plant these other churches, he gets a report about how the church in Corinth is doing. It's not good. The report's not good at all. These Christians are giving into the culture. They're just going through all kinds of different things. And it gets so bad that Paul decides it's time to sit down and write this letter, the letter that we're studying this year, 1 Corinthians. As he sits down to pen this letter, he approaches it very similar to the way Nathan approached David. He comes in and he explains the gospel to them and gets them in on something. And then he hammers it home that they're the ones that are not living up to what they say they believe. And so he presents the gospel to them over and over and over again by applying it to these issues that they're going through. And so the book of 1 Corinthians is 
First Corinthians is broken into sections, and each section of this letter deals with an issue that Paul heard from this church. And so he's got to deal with this issue. Our first section is 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4. That makes up the first section. And the problem that Paul is addressing with this church is divisiveness. All kinds of divisiveness. And so David, brilliantly, I'm telling you, we are blessed. He's my favorite preacher. I know he's my father-in-law and I'm biased and that's brownie points and all. I get all that. But man, last week was awesome. And he walked us through 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he presented to us that Paul builds this case for unity over and over again, that Christians are the ones who should be united, and they're united around something the rest of the world sees as foolish, a crucified Christ. The world sees that as a foolish thing, but we must be united. Now, in chapter 2, he presents this part of the Christian life that I really do think, as I've studied it, is one of the most important things that any follower of Jesus should know. It's vitally important for our walk with the Lord. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 6, and we're going to go through 16. 6 through 16. Here's what it says. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. This is extremely important because throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul is going to do what he's doing right here in chapter 2. He's going to contrast two things. Here's the heartbeat of it. Contrast a life of foolishness and a life of wisdom, godly wisdom in particular. And so he uses this word in his description of what it means to live for the world. It's sukikos. And the, world, the word means the natural physical elements of man. And so here's what Paul is saying. These are the people that they live their life for the physical, social, material pleasures of life. And they're not really concerned with there being anything more to life than that. They're aware. They are completely aware that there might be something, but they're not convinced. So they want to create heaven on earth. Because they have this sneaking suspicion that there may not be a heaven after they're done living on earth. And so the only thing left to do is to make life as good as you can while you can. Now, the Bible runs completely contrary to this way of thinking. And this passage in particular is going to make, tell us, warn us, be aware of that. Be aware that the draw to live for the world is going to be very strong in your life. And when the Bible speaks of foolishness, many of us, we think, and, and we use this in our language, we think foolishness is somehow someone didn't know better. So when someone's living a foolish life, oh, they didn't know better. And we'll say things like, well, bless their heart. They'll come around. They'll grow out of it. This is just a season. Everybody has to do it. And we'll talk about foolishness as though there's this strand of innocence that flows through it that they just didn't know better. Well, that's not biblical foolishness. See, when the Bible talks about foolishness, it's talking about somebody who knows what they should be doing, who has an understanding of the way that they should live, and they consciously make a decision not to do it. They make a decision. This is not the way I'm going to live. I know I should, and I have at least somewhat of an understanding of the way I should live my life, but I'm going to go over here and try to create as much comfort and happiness as I possibly can. There's an intentionality to biblical foolishness. And Paul, he's going to contrast that with the wisdom that comes from God. In fact, all through chapter 1, he's been trying to make a very strong case that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, owes nothing to human wisdom. It owes nothing to the human mind and ability to create things. All you need to do is look back at verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2. 
The Apostle Paul says, when I came to you, I didn't come with persuasive language. I didn't come with the ability to convince you of all of this. When I came, I came in weakness. Some speculate that Paul may have had a, a, some sort of a stutter. So when he got up, he, he was kind of hard to listen to. I mean, after all, Paul was the guy who preached people to death falling out of windows because he, I mean, it's very possible the guy was not easy to listen to. And he says, when I came as I'm preaching, I, I didn't have all that. But what I did, I just simply presented the Bible to you. I presented God's word to you. I presented the gospel to you. And that's all I did. And the world didn't understand it. See, the world was seeking signs and wonders. He's saying, if, if you were looking for a senior minister in Corinth, Paul would not have been your guy. He's not the leadership guru who's writing books, who gets up and controls the stage and wows everybody and completely with all of his charisma makes you feel like you need to do something. He wasn't that guy. He simply came. He lived among them. He modeled the gospel and he spoke very clearly. Here is what the gospel says. And he left it at that. And he's making a really strong case here. That those who are mature understand that that message that he was conveying to them was only understandable because of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of them. And that the reason that the world sees it as foolishness, the reason that the world can look at a Christian, a Christian family, and say the way you're raising your kids, the decisions that you make with your money, the approach that you have to your marriage, that's a foolish thing. How could you live that way? You could be coming over here and making way more comfortable decisions and having a lot more fun if you would just live this way. That's a foolish way of living. And Paul's saying the reason that they see that as foolishness is because they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. He says, but you who are followers of Jesus have the Holy Spirit that is alive in you. And the Holy Spirit is what gives you the power and the ability to understand the mystery of the gospel. And he calls it a mystery here for a reason. It's a mystery because those outside of Christ don't understand it. What he's not saying is if you're mature, the mystery's been revealed to you like he's somehow saying, hey, for some of you Christians, the more you mature, the more you're going to be uh, privy, you're going to be allowed to, you're going to earn your way by your spiritual maturity into some special knowledge of God. He's not saying that. We know that because if you look at verse 9, he describes mature as simply being those who love God. That's what he says. Verse 9. It's the people that love God. So here's what that means. That if you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, then you have access to this level of maturity and understanding of Jesus. That's what he's saying. And since every believer has the Holy Spirit living in them when they're baptized into Christ, then every believer, every single follower of Jesus with the Holy Spirit living inside of them has access to this mystery, to understanding this mystery that Paul's talking about. And the other reason he calls it a mystery is because there is no way that any of us could ever understand it if God didn't choose to reveal it. This is key. This is an important part of the passage because the Apostle Paul is bringing the Corinthian readers along with him. He's saying the only way that you can understand what God's trying to do in your life around you, the only way that you can open up the teachings of Jesus and understand them is because God chose in his sovereignty, the song we sang, God you reign, God chose in his power to reveal to us what he wanted us to understand. And he says, apart from God's desire to reveal it to us, you have no chance of ever understanding what God's thinking. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't work your way up to it. You can't learn it. It doesn't matter how influential, how powerful you are. It doesn't matter what political party you align yourself with. It doesn't matter the decisions that you make. If God chooses to reveal something to you, then you are going to be able to understand it. And mainly his word. He's speaking of the Bible. He's not speaking of other things. He's saying God chose in his sovereignty to reveal his heart to us in his word. And it's the spirit that lives inside of us that gives us the ability to understand what he's saying. 
And that's why it's foolishness to everybody who doesn't have the spirit inside of them. But to those of us who do, we have this ability to understand what he's saying. It brought to my mind, and here's, man, I love this, because Ben explained to us in the welcome that when we put these services together, we're not just throwing things together. At the same time, there are times where God reminds us that it's him working. I will tell you, this is what I mean. I'm responsible for this part of the service, the preaching. I don't do anything else in this service. I don't plan it all, and that is awesome. <laughs> I have nothing to do with any of it. That's Ben. He puts it all together. And so each week, I will finish the sermon, and I will send in what I want to come up on the screens. And then his team graciously puts that together, and it shows up on the screens when we need it to show up on the screens. I say all that to say this. When I sent in the slides, the sermon was done. And then Ben reaches out to me, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm actually going to Isaiah 55 as the call to worship. And so that's fascinating because that's the passage that came to my mind when I studied verses 6 through 9. And I've included it right here in my notes. So Isaiah chapter 55 says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, or your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. The Apostle Paul is saying, you don't even have the ability to conceive what God is thinking unless he chooses to reveal it to you. And even when he chose to reveal it to us, many still call it foolishness because they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. We don't even have the vocabulary to begin to understand the way that God operates unless he chooses to give it to us. He goes on to explain this more in verse 10. Look at verse 10. If you have your Bible open, it says this. These are the things that God has revealed to us by the Spirit. So we understand the Spirit is what gives us the ability to understand what has been revealed. And he says, here's what he's revealed. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So he understands both how humans operate and how God operates. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God. So, that, so here's the reason. Here's why we received it. So that we may understand what God has freely given to us, meaning what he has revealed to us in his word. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Meaning, uh, and, and put that, uh, Andy, I don't know if you still have the John Stott quote, but is that still accessible or was it deleted? There it is. John Stott explains it this way. He says, the Spirit spoke his words through their words. So he used their words so that their words were simultaneously his. This happened for the apostles, not us. So none of y'all are writing scripture, okay? This is how it worked when the Holy Spirit spoke through the apostles. He spoke his words, God's words, through their words so that their words would simultaneously be his, revealed to us, understandable by the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is explaining right here. Only God's Spirit can comprehend God's plans and purposes, and only God's Spirit can actually link God and human beings. So the question is, how do we connect to God? How do we connect to him? How can this great divide be bridged? How is it possible? What's well, only possible when God moves. It's only possible through the work of his Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. Only the Spirit can make that possible. Paul right here, here's what he's doing. He is trying to draw a very thick and heavy line that divides the way of God and the way of human beings and put God in a category that's not even accessible by human beings so that we can understand the great gift that God has given to us. 
And here's what, I'm going to touch on this in just a few minutes. I'm, you're getting it today. I'm sorry. In, in just a few minutes. But I don't want you to miss this because I have a deep fear in my heart that we are at risk of falling away. And I really mean that. Here's what Paul is trying to say here. When it comes to your discipleship, your growth, your knowledge, your spiritual maturity, there is absolutely, completely no substitute for this at all. So it doesn't matter what podcasts you listen to, what preacher you're listening to. It doesn't matter what books you read, journals you read, devotionals you read. All of that stuff is fine, but it cannot be a substitute for you engaging in God's living and active word. It can't. It will never give you what only this can give you because of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. That's what Paul's trying to say. And without the Spirit of God, you're always going to live an incomplete life. You can pursue a lot of things with your life, but they're all going to lead you in the direction of foolishness if you don't have God's word hidden in your heart. He closes out this section in verses 14 through 16. Verse 14 is the thesis verse of the whole passage. It's the summary verse. If you're someone who likes to take notes, someone who likes to really engage with this, I, wanna, um, I would tell you, challenge you, encourage you, commit this verse to memory. Here's what he says. The person without the Spirit, which we've talked about, they don't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They can't because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. Instead, they consider them foolish. And they cannot understand them because these things are only discerned through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we, because of the Holy Spirit, because of God's word, have the mind of Christ. So question for you. Why do you think it is that those who are outside of Christ, who are not walking with the Lord, can look at the way a Christian lives and think it to be so foolish? There's a million answers to that. But I think one of them is this. One of them is that the wisdom of God reveals the helplessness of man. I think the wisdom of God reveals the helplessness of man. And what I mean by that is this. They realize that they can't earn it. You can't work hard enough for it. You can't steal it. You can't recreate it. There's only one way to escape the emptiness and the foolishness that this world is giving to you. Only one way. And they don't, they don't want that. And so it's foolishness. But let me give you a pop quiz, all right? Take out a piece of paper. You're going to turn this in for a grade. I'm kidding. But last year, we studied through the book of Acts, okay? We spent a year studying Acts. And if you'll remember, when in Acts chapter 17, when the apostle Paul shows up to the city of Athens, he begins to present the gospel to scholars and academics, really intelligent people. And their response to him is not to intellectually counter what he was teaching. They, didn't, they couldn't do that. They see it as truth. They didn't want it. And so what did they do? They resorted to 2020 political tactics, and they just started calling them names. You're a babbler. And they scoffed at what he was teaching, and they pushed him away. Or do you remember in Acts chapter 26 when the Apostle Paul's on trial, getting ready to head uh, to Rome, and Festus is before him, and the Apostle Paul just presents the gospel to everybody who can hear it. And Festus, who cannot intellectually argue with the facts, gets so frustrated, he just lashes out and says, you're insane. You've lost your mind. Who should believe that? He just kind of loses it on them. This is what the world does. They see it as foolishness, and here's why. It's a very humbling thing to realize that the only way to access what your soul really needs has nothing to do with what you're capable of. I'm going to say that again. It's a very humbling thing to come to the realization that to have access to the, what your soul really needs has absolutely nothing to do with your capability. That's a humbling thing. Now, he closes this out by saying, 
We, with the Spirit, we have the ability to mature and to grow. And when he talks about the mind of Christ, here's what he's saying. The mind of Christ is simply this. Those who take seriously what God has told them, and they allow everything in their life to be filtered through the teaching of Jesus. That's what he means by the mind of Christ. It's not some special level that you attain. It's not some place that you get to. When you've been a Christian for 15 years and five months and you've accomplished all these goals, here you go. That's not what he's saying. He's saying simply, if you want to attain the mind of Christ that's accessible to all who love God and have the spirit within them, that mind of Christ simply means that everything I'm doing in life is filtered through the lens of what Jesus said. It is submitting to his lordship in your life. It is seeing the world through the lens of the gospel. Now, I'm going to ask you something here. We're, going to, we're going over time. I'm sorry. Uh, when we walk through a passage like what we just did, when we study a passage like that, maybe you're like me. I begin to see, okay, Paul's describing the foolishness of the world, and he's describing, and I begin to think of people. I don't know if you do that, or maybe you've been doing that this morning. I, I struggled with the sermon because it was a lot more teaching uh, style this morning, and I thought, man, so many of us are going to be sitting, yeah, I know that. Yeah, the Holy, that's what the Holy Spirit does. We understand that. Yes, Rob, absolutely. The Holy Spirit does this. And yes, that's foolishness to not do it. I am all in. I, I totally agree with you. And I think there's a case to be made that that's exactly what Paul wants you to do. I think it's exactly what he wanted the readers in Corinth to do, to come along. He's bringing them along like Nathan did with David. Yeah, I agree with that. Man, I absolutely agree with that. Only in chapter 3 to bring the hammer and say, well, guess what? You are the fool. Sure, you agree with all this unity. Sure, you agree with all that the Holy Spirit should be doing in you, but you are not living up to what you say you believe. And in chapter 3, he begins to call them out specifically on how they're doing that. If you're like me, guilty as charged. Think of foolishness, biblical foolishness. I'm thinking of all kinds of, I mean, here's a name, here's a name. This guy over here, yeah, this guy's messing everything up. I'm not, but he is. And you start thinking about all these names, and yet we don't want to place ourselves into it, do we? Share a little bit of my heart here. Paul wants his readers to know this, that conversion, becoming a Christian, is not the touchdown of the Christian life. It's the kickoff. It's the kickoff. It's not the touchdown. It is the beginning point, and we are called to mature and to grow, and I think we have a real problem on our hands, and I'm really concerned for it. I think the big C church has a problem, churches particularly in the United States, and that is biblical illiteracy. In an effort with somewhat pure motives to make everything easier for everybody, we have turned discipleship and church life and following Jesus into human wisdom and knowledge, into tweetable quotes that we can get in one little tiny chunk and walk away with. So sermons and Bible studies, they become about how to make your life better and apply principles to your life. And I think we have a real problem here because now the church doesn't know how to open the Bible. We've got an entire generation that doesn't know how to engage with God's word. Because we've spent so much time trying to make it as easy as possible instead of challenging them to step up and mature and grow. Let me give you a little insight into my home. This was convicting to me. I'm not just saying this for everybody else. This is for me too. Devotions in our home, devotions in my house, were um, uh, always, they've always been a fun time. It's good. But they turn into discipline time in our house, right? We try to sit in the living room and it's like, Stop wrestling. We're going to study the Bible. Stop. Everybody, calm down. Everybody sit down. Okay, sit down. God wants to talk. And you're just like, ah. And it's like, man. And, and so I, I felt a deep conviction. And so this year, I've, I've made some changes. And I'm going to give you some insight into this. Maybe it'll help you. Maybe it won't. But it, it's because of what I've been studying and reading in multiple different books and the problem that we're up against um, in, in our culture. And so we made a decision three to four nights a week, and we, we space it out. I actually have our kids sit around the table in our kitchen now. And every, every one of them brings out their Bible, and they open it up to the passage we're going to study. And we're just walking through Scripture together. 
And I have each of them read a part of the scripture. Even my three-year-old will pull out a Bible and babble through it, and then we'll reread his passage. And then I teach him. I just teach him. And then on the off nights, so that we're not like completely like, man, school never ends for us, uh, we pray together. We just spend time praying. And the reason I do that is because uh, my kids, they're going to have weeks like Ben did. And they're going to go through seasons in their life that are really hard. And I'm not going to be able to protect them from it. But I can prepare them. I can prepare them. And I fear for their generation. I fear. Because when the storms come, and they're coming, they don't know how to open this. Let me ask you a question. John chapter 16 Jesus teaches on the last night of his life that the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit, he says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and his primary purpose in your life is going to be to bring to the front of your mind my words when you need them. That's what he said. That was his promise, John chapter 16. That said, here's my question for you. Is the Holy Spirit in your life drawing from a dry well? Is he drawing from a dry well? You reading? engaging with scripture, praying scripture, memorizing scripture. The world will give you a million reasons not to, and every one of them leads to foolishness. We're called to be mature. I don't know about you, but I want desperately for our church to be a part of the solution to biblical illiteracy, and so we're going to help you. I will, we will buy you a Bible. You don't have a good study Bible? You come talk to me. We will buy you a study Bible so that you can get into God's word. We will always have classes that are going to teach the Bible. I promise you, from the bottom of my heart, we will always preach the Bible from this stage as long as I'm here. Our elders met yesterday for a retreat. We prayed, and what came out of that was multiple things. And one of the things that came out of that is we are committed to developing biblical education in this church. And we want it to grow, and we want it to expand. We want people to study and understand the Bible. And I promise you that we are committed to that. Because when the storms come, and they're going to come, I don't know about you, but I want the Holy Spirit to have a deep well to pull from so that when the storm comes, my foundation and your foundation are found to be on the rock and not the sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We ask a blessing. A blessing on everybody here, that as we begin to engage your word, your Holy Spirit would move powerfully in our life, and that we would... We would come to life. We would be transformed because of it. I'm grateful that your word has continually transformed lives all around me. It's, it's brought deadbeat dads to legacy building dads. I've watched it uh, heal marriages and friendships and, and people offering forgiveness that made no sense. And I've sat in living rooms, Father, where people who had prepared themselves for the storm they were walking through, and it made all the difference in the world to have your word hidden deep in their hearts. And that's our prayer. As we hide your word deep in our hearts, we pray the Holy Spirit has a deep full well to pull from when we need it. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.